Hey, welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Check us out on the web at missiodeschicago.com. Until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling to Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him and to drink and saying, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. The word of the Lord. All right, let me pray for us. God, we, uh, we come before you this Lent season just meditating on the the love of Jesus, the different ways that you uh, displayed your great love to others on the cross, specifically to those on the margins who engage with you on the cross, and the outsiders that uh, come to you, um, being whether they're, they're outsiders religiously or culturally or, or morally, um, socially, um, you bring them in and accept them, for you came to give life and liberty and freedom to the captives. You came to conquer and vindicate, and you came to make all things new. And so, God, we come before you as your people. Would you make us a community that leaves the cross, not in some kind of triumphal crusade, but as a cruciformed family that says we die to ourselves. To die, to, uh, to die is gain. To live is Christ. We come before you as your people who come and say, Lord, would you do your great work in us? Would you shine your light upon the cross of Jesus? Would you make us astounded again? Whether Maybe this is the first time you've heard about the cross of Jesus, or maybe it's the, the, the thousandth time. Would you stir our heart again afresh, Lord Jesus? And it's your name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. 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 You guys can have a seat. Uh, two more announcements just real quick that I just want to remind you of. Uh, one, there's a book club uh, led by Lauren McKean, and there's a book in the back um, called Disunity in Christ. We're not adv- advocating disunity in Christ, but it's about actually uh, us and them kind of paradigms and how we kind of create disunity in the body of Christ. Uh, what's the date of that, Warren? What's the, what's the date of that book club? April 24th, we think. Uh, and no, uh, yeah, I think it's a Saturday. April 21st. It's a Saturday. All right. Uh, second thing is, um, it's, it's uh, Ashley and, and I's uh, 12-year anniversary. And I just want to throw that out there. I know I don't, I'm sorry that you guys don't all get to get up here and announce it, but I'm saying that because I asked her, what, what can I do to help you this morning? And she says, can you make an announcement about Missio Day Kids? So if you want to love on Ashley for, or, no, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to make you, get, <laughs> I'm not going to guilt you into doing this. We have uh, no guilt zone here as well in terms of, of guilting people into serving. But no, seriously, if you would like to serve in Missio Day Kids, if you'd love to just love on kids, um, they are a vital part of our family. They're not an add-on. Um, I know people mean well when they say kids are the future of our generation. They're not just the future. They're the present of our church. They matter now, and they're not just something that we look towards the future. They're like a vital part of this family. They're not just a, like a tack on. Um, so we want to serve our youngest members of our church, uh, discipling them and loving them. And so uh, it's a once-a-month commitment. Um, if that's something you're interested in, um, uh, email uh, Lincoln Square. That's easy to remember at missiodechicago.com or talk to Ashley upstairs. Cool? All right, let's get into our sermon. Uh, we are in this series, as I said, on outsiders. 
in which we're looking at um, when Jesus died on the cross, um, all of his disciples fled and left him. And those that Jesus engaged with were all in some way, shape, or form an outsider, whether they were a cultural outsider like Simon of Cyrene, who carried Jesus's crossbeam on the way to the cross, or last week he, we saw that he died between two of society's outcasts, criminal of criminals, who were morally bankrupt, yet Jesus says, today, one of them who repents, you'll be with me in paradise. And Jesus comes to make those who we think are the furthest away from coming into God's kingdom, the first to get into God's kingdom. Amen? And today we look at a, uh, a, a religious outsider, a Roman centurion who is outside of Jewish religion uh, norms who would have been seen as another or as an enemy from Jewish perspective, and then for everybody else who wasn't Roman would have seen as an oppressive outsider. Um, so we want to look at what does it mean to, for the Jesus and the cross to love those who are part of an oppressive regime. should be fun. All right? All right, so uh, Christianity is really unique really unique. Uh, no one, nowhere in human history, it's just a car, everybody. It is a car. Brand new car! Who's in line? $20,000! I'm oh, sorry. All right. Uh, so, um, Christianity is unique, not because it gives you brand new cars. Christianity is unique because no one in human history, no one in history of human imagination could conceive of worshiping a crucified man. No one could ever conceive of this. It is peculiar. Other religion, religious leaders all throughout were given dignified deaths. Uh, but J- Jesus Christ, we see, is pinned up between two of outcasts uh, from society and dies a horrible death. It is a peculiar centerpiece, the cross is. It is the peculiar centerpiece of Christianity, the cross. And so I want us to just reclaim the wonder of the cross this morning. I, I think that it gets... So often watered down, we, we turn it into a decoration, we turn the cross into a necklace. Uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, I remember my, one of my favorite rap songs, Kesha, Jesus is on my necklace, right? I mean, so you got all kinds of just cultural milieus, if you will, of the cross. Um, but I want us to remember the cross. And so um, I want us to do it through the lenses of this man that encounters Jesus, who um, is the Roman centurion. Now, we need to first just talk about who is this dude? Um, the Roman centurion. There's a couple of things we can know. Um, number one, he's Roman. You're like, Captain Obvious. Um, but we need to say something about that. The fact that um, in the time of Rome, um, the Caesar uh, uh, emperor of this time was Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus had just led Rome out of a civil war. Um, the last previous generation, there was a civil war within Rome. Um, Rome has become the known, like, like Mecca of the known world. It has conquered so many territories. Um, and now Caesar Augustus' message in his way of propagating his rule and reign was to uh, basically divinize, divinize himself. So he would, um, on coins, on poems, on inscriptions, on images, statues, and altars and structures, everywhere would have Caesar Augustus' image and it would say, the Son of God, the bringer of peace and salvation to the world. So, so that was the time of Jesus. He was celebrated as this great savior of Rome to the people who would likely have been hopeless during this previous civil war. And, um, and now here he is um, propagating this message of hope, um, but the empire justified its dominance through this message of hope as it dominated Rome, uh, the, the area. Now, so imagine this Roman soldier who had ingrained in him this habit of unflinching loyalty to the Roman empire, Right? Imagine he was, he, 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 this guy was an experienced person. He was a centurion. 
Um, that means that he was over a hundred soldiers as a, as a Roman official. And so he was an experienced person. He wasn't some young guy. Um, uh, he, he, was, uh, he, he was a part of this, 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 these ideas that like Rome, Rome had in, in fil- infiltrated to him. So imagine what he sees when he sees someone die. Now, you got to remember that this man had seen a thousand deaths. This guy had seen crucifixion after crucifixion after crucifixion. He was probably desensitized to the crucifixion. Probably didn't, he probably had seen a thousand people crucified. Um, and now we get to uh, Jesus' life, and I want us to just stop and remind us for a minute of what this Roman centurion saw, because um, I think we, we often, like, if we don't really talk about the details of the crucifixion in this series, um, it will either become, like, in, blurred between fairy tale and, and, and truth, and, and somewhere in between. Um, so we have to talk about the, the details of the crucifixion, or else it's just going to get a little like, we just start to think of this as just like a little fairy tale story, all right? Now, I got to warn you, the details of crucifixion are gruesome, all right? So this is not going to be pleasant for anyone to talk about. Um, And it wasn't pleasant for anyone to talk about then. Um, What the Roman centurion saw, uh, this was not the subject of light Roman dinner party conversation, all right? The historian Josephus, uh, he said it was the most wretched of deaths. The Roman politician Cicero said decent Romans shouldn't talk about the cross because it was unfit for them to even ponder this kind of murdersome death. It was the worst form of execution. You've got to understand, middle class and wealthy people who were, were never killed by crucifixion, ever. Um, this was reserved for criminals. It was reserved for the lowest of lows. It was reserved for anybody who was a revolutionary, which is why they killed Jesus, was because they saw him as a revolutionary. Um, who, was, who was thwarting the Roman government. Um, they, they, the idea of a crucifixion was to attach someone to a piece of wood and to keep them alive as long as possible on that piece of wood while they died. And so they would put nails through different parts of the body. There was no law or way to tell a Roman centurion such as this man and his regime on how to crucify someone. They could crucify someone however they wanted to. So there's various stories of crucifixions in which they nailed various body parts to the cross. Um, There was not always, as we know it, of Jesus' way of through the nails in the hands. There was various body parts nailed to the cross, and I'll just leave it at that. Um, For the Jews, this kind of death was singled out as particularly for indignant people. For the scripture says, anyone who hung on a tree is considered cursed by God. Now, this practice didn't get removed until 300 years after Jesus' death. So this brutal, the most um, horrific, inhumane, degrading way of punishing someone in the history of the world was the crucifixion, all right? Um, and, and so let's think about Jesus in particular. Um, he would have already been exhausted as he went through the Garden of Gethsemane. He would have um, been in the Garden of Gethsemane, so anxious, um, sweating drops of blood that his anxiety was so uh, filled with anxiety. He went through six different trials, three Jewish, three Roman, in which he was tried um, and determined to be crucified. Um, he uh, was gathered by the uh, Roman uh, soldiers, and he was flogged. And I don't want to underestimate the environment that Jesus went through. He was surrounded by rough, violent men who would have gotten a high through the violence that would come. They stripped him naked. Um, 
his hands were tied over his head to a wooden pole. Um, they started beating him with a cat of nine tails. This cat of nine tails was filled with, with, with straps of leather. Um, interwoven into those straps of leather were, leather were balls, hooks, bone, and metal. Um, so this whip would have been thrown onto the back of Jesus, um, and they would ensure that the teeth would be embedded into his flesh uh, and um, before they pulled down on his body. So his whole body would have been ripped of his flesh by the time they were finished with him. Jesus would have been in utter shock, um, completely shocked, which is understandable why he couldn't carry his cross. Um, and then so once that was done, um, the soldiers placed a crown of thorns forced onto his head and put a sign that said, King of the Jews, mocking him, and said, if you all look at him, King of the Jews, King of the Jews, if, you are, if you're the king, save yourself and save us, said the, one of the thieves on the cross. And the soldiers, um, they, they humiliated him completely. They, they spat on him. Uh, they plucked his beard out of his face. They blindfolded him and hit him and mocked him and said, prophesy, King of the Jews, who hit you? Uh, they, they, um, this, they then uh, forced Jesus to carry his cross. And at the side of the crucifixion, they would have laid Jesus on the ground on top of the cross, um, nails driven through the most sensitive parts of his body, through the sensitive nerves of his body, through his wrist and through his feet. Uh, and then um, when you were crucified, you, you actually died of the a lack of oxygen. Uh, so uh, on the crucifixion, you had been forced to um, lift yourself up on the nails of your feet in order to catch your breath, and this was the slow death of death. And um, it, the, this would have happened for hours, sometimes days, and it would have been accompanied by dehydration, uh, blood loss, and shock. And so um, they can, we come, we've come up with a word for for this. The word excruciating literally means out from the cross. That's, that's how the word excruciating got created. So this is the, the, the physical suffering of Jesus, and it raises a whole lot of questions. A whole lot of questions when you really think about this kind of death. Like, why would God choose this kind of death? And why would the triune God, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, co-equally agree to let the Son of God and for the Son of God to willfully give up his life on the cross. Why did, why was, what was God doing on the cross? And does it really make a difference? I remember when I came to plant a church here in Chicago, I remember, you know, you would tell people, I'd first tell people we're starting a church, and they're like, you can't start a, a Catholic parish, what are you thinking? So I'd just change that and say, I'm starting a spiritual community. And they'd go, oh, is it Buddhist? Is it Hindu? Is it, is it this? And you'd get all these questions. I'm from Alabama. When you said you're starting a church, you'd be like, is it Baptist or Presbyterian? You know, it's like, and so here you have so many different worldviews, and, and some people are like, why the death of Jesus? I remember this one lady's like, what in the world does the death of Jesus have to do with my life, right? And so we have to ask this question of like, what does the cross really make a difference? Like many people have died for their faith. So why, why, does the, is God doing anything on the cross? Is he actually accomplishing anything? And so some people would say, like my, my friend that I met in Lincoln Square, nothing is what's happening on the cross, some would say. Um, uh, Another person, Sprong, who set out to uh, prove that Jesus is, Jesus is not God, wrote a book called Jesus Didn't Die for Your Sins. Um, and so he obviously sees that what was happening on that day was nothing. Um, nothing besides Jesus is dying between two thieves and a revolutionary. But the biblical 
like narrative says something else. The biblical story is that the cross is the turning point of all human history. That it is the turning point that the God of God who created the world was judged for his innocence and took on the brutality of injustice and sin upon himself was a turning point of the cross. And so what I, what I want us to see before we keep moving forward is that we need to see that the cross is uh, so multifaceted, so um, we're looking at the series through the outsider lenses of people's different perspectives. Now, go to the next um, slide of this picture of windows. I, it's kind of dark, you can't see, but this is kind of like the metaphor. I kind of uh, put a, you, like, you guys like my amazing um, graphic design work? I put a black cross right there in the middle of that courtyard um, because this is kind of like if you were to walk around that courtyard and just look at the cross from different perspectives, you would see something different every single time. And throughout history, Christians have seen all these different amazing, beautiful things when they look at the cross. They see the love of God. They see the amazing suffering of God that stands in solidarity with us. The cross is the place that is the final act to redeem creation. It is definitive victory over Satan. It is the reversal of a long downward spiral that began with Adam and Eve in the garden. It is a creation of a new humanity. It is, it is, a, is the death of death and is the biblical witness that testifies that God loved us, that he chose to die on this wretched cross. And so if you ever go to a church and they're like, they, they, they want to really focus on one aspect of the cross, I would say be careful because the, the, the biblical story is that there's just amazing like multitude of pictures of the cross and that it's a mistake to pick just one uh, motif at the exclusion of others. The importance is this is whole tapestry. It's multifaceted and it's inexhaustible. I mean, you, we, would, we would be here forever. It would take a lifetime to exhaust the love of God and the multifaceted love of God from the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And so I want to just look at a few today um, that in relation to the Roman centurion's story of what God is doing on the cross, like why did God have to be crucified? Is God actually doing anything? And I want to look at like what uh, three motifs and, and things that God's doing on the cross that are in relation to like an, a, the Roman centurion who's a part of this oppressive regime of Rome who created this crucifixion. So the first thing that God is doing on the cross is, is this word judgment. Now, this is not something that we love to talk about in the church. We just, bam, just pray beautifully, the love of God. Um, and so we talk about the love of God a whole lot in church, right? Um, but we don't really talk about judgment. Now, we, this is a scene that all throughout the Old Testament, um, it says that there's such a thing as, as guilt, um, that whenever there's sin, that there's a guilt and, and a price to be paid for that guilt. So this imagery is, one of the windows of this imagery is a courtroom scene. Um, the last judgment, if you will. It's a powerful theme that the Almighty God, all throughout the prophets, there's like these prophets saying, like, there's warning, warning, warning. There's judgment coming for injustice. There's judgment coming for God's people if they don't wake up and see their sin as a, as a, as a, as a violation to the covenant of God. But he always is coupling that with God's love and redemption. And so um, when we look at this theme of, of judgment, we, we, we sometimes think of like, it really just hits us in the face because uh, we love to think in the West, most Christians who have come from a place of privilege, a place of, of, of ease, ease and in, in all of us in America, I would say, in relation to the rest of the world, we're, we got life pretty well, right? Um, so if you were to go to the third world country and you were to say, what is God like? What do you want God to be like? They would talk about the justice of God. They'd be like, I can't wait. 
I, I worship a God who, who, like, the one who came and destroyed my family, I worship a God who is going to one day make all things right. Because I, I lost my entire family to, to, a, to a war or to something brutal. And they, they worship a God. For us, we don't think about that. We think of, oh, just, just forgiveness. Now, but can God really just forgive and forget? Can God, can God just really, we love the idea of forgiveness, um, but can he really just forgive and forget. I think what made this Roman centurion follow God is he saw the forgiveness of God. On the cross, he saw Jesus cry out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But the biggest issue of forgiveness is, 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 is there's a sense of, um, we can't forget the sense that there's guilt when there's wrong. Um, our society doesn't like to talk about guilt. Uh, we like to try, to try to move away from it, not acknowledge it. But I would presume this, that if, if you get rid of guilt, you have to get rid of justice. If you get rid of guilt, you have to get rid of justice. Even, even researchers like Brene Brown, who researches a lot on vulnerability, says guilt is good, guilt is healthy. Guilt is you did something bad. Shame is what we often fight against at Missio Day. We talk a lot about um, making sure that we rid shame. Shame is you are bad. Guilt is you did something bad. So God's judgment is not towards us. It is towards the sin that separates us from him. It is because of God's love is so great that he has judgment towards sin. Um, so, so I think most of us want a God of justice. I think deep down we want a God that actually... Um, does something to our guilt because we can't get rid of our guilt. Some of us, you just try like, hey, don't be guilty. Don't feel guilty anymore. You're like, you just can't. We all struggle with what Lady Macbeth did in the very famous speech of hers. She said, out, damn spot, out, I say. Right? There's this sense inside of us that just like wants this, we can't, somebody has to pay the cost. Someone has to pay the price. And since the Enlightenment, we've got philosophers from the 17th century, 18th century, who've believed that, who've basically advocated that we should live in a morally neutral universe. David uh, Hume, for example, who basically said we need to do away with anything that can't be determined by science. And science is very helpful. I believe faith and science are, are, are complement to each other. The Bible is not a science book, right? Um, but it, science helps produce the at atomic bomb. But science doesn't say when we should use the atomic bomb and if we should even use it. So science alone isn't the answer. And so we, we have to, this is kind of in our popular consciousness that basically like live however you want. But as I mentioned, if you get rid of guilt, you get rid of justice. And the cross only makes sense when we recognize that the cross of Jesus is Jesus making our world right. He is taking on that ju the judgment for our sins. So we are not judged. As Karl Barth said, it is the judge who was judged in our place. Now, let me just flush this out for you who still are struggling with this concept of God having judgment um, or, or anger towards sin. Um, let's, I want you to think of like the most respected married couple that you know. All right? Maybe it's your, family, your, your parents. Um, maybe it's a mentor. I want you to think of the most respected married couple you know. And then I want you, you got this person in your mind? Right, everybody? All right, cool. Now, I want you to imagine the husband comes to his wife and confesses to her, hey, um, I had an affair. I slept with another woman, not only one other woman, I slept with three other women in the last month. And the wife goes, ah, pass me the coffee, it's all right, I forgive you. Come here, you're a good husband. Kisses him on the cheek. What would you think of, of, of her? <laughs> like, what would you think, first of all, you know, we know what we think of him. 
But now what would you think of her? <laughs> You'd be like, does she really love this man? Like, God's love is not passive. God's love is not in pieces. God's love is so strong for you, so strong for you that he is angered and it, he is outraged at anything that is getting in the way of your relationship with him. And so he has, he does, he, our society is so divided. The only thing that keeps us like all in common is outrage. <laughs> we are all outraged by something right now. And for us to think that God can't be outraged, God is outraged when something is getting in the way of us receiving his love. And he is outraged when we pursue a lesser love, when we pursue something less lovely than him. And so the first thing that is important, and you've got to ima imagine a society of this, that fact that God takes the injustice of a society and he, he one day is going to make judgment of it. He's one day going to judge the oppressors. He's one day going to judge Adolf Hitler, or he already has. He, he, I, I love what um, uh, Vince Gilligan, who played Breaking Bad, he says that if there's a world that does not have cosmic justice, then what are we doing here? And so I think he played that, he was in an interview after he played his role in Breaking Bad that he was so convinced that for our society to exist, it has to have a system of justice. And on the cross, we see the mercy of God and the judgment of God kiss. That Jesus got what we deserve so that, so that we could get what he deserved, which is life, and life to the full, all right? So that's that thing. Second thing that we see uh, is, is this theme called Christus Victor. Now, in this passage, it says, we'll go to the next verse, it says that there was an hour, the darkness came over the entire earth. Now, this was 12 o'clock noon, all right? I've only seen darkness cover the entire, like, sky at 12 o'clock noon. One time in my life, I was in West Africa, and there was a sandstorm, and literally, it went from, like, bright as day to pitch black in 20 minutes, and blew my mind. It was a sandstorm, um, but here in the scriptures, is talking about another kind of darkness. It was this spiritual darkness. Now, here's the interesting thing. Whenever darkness is mentioned in Scripture, it has to usually do with like the, we, talked to, we did a series several months ago about the evil powers and forces of this world. So I think the Roman centurion saw this sky turn black, knowing that it wasn't a sandstorm, and saw that there's something supernatural going on. Um, and so um, the, the chapter before that, Jesus is about to go to the cross. He, his, this, one of his disciples cuts off a guy's ear, starts to use violent force, and Jesus says, this is the, he says this, he says, this is the, the hour of darkness. This is the power of your darkness. He's like talking out loud, and he's talking almost to Satan, saying, this is your hour. This hour of death of Jesus' cross is the hour of where Satan is going to have, his, have the most amount of reign and influence at one time, because he is taking over this time, and he's giving Satan a chance to, to he, giving him what he wants, which is destroy the Son of God. And so this is an amazing, important thing, that when Jesus died, he came to conquer Satan. He came to, the, the, when we have oppression in our society, we talked about how that oppression always is stemming from a diabolical, evil force, that spiritual warfare is when the, this, the evil forces of our world attach themselves to institutions, to societies, to things like this, to, to frameworks and ideologies. And when Satan attaches himself to an ideology and uses it for evil, what we see on the cross is Jesus comes and he's not just, he's not just judging sin, he's also judging Satan, the author of sin. He is coming and he is placing judgment on him. He is, he is, he was, he is basically fulfilling 
um, his role of conquering Satan and raising again to reign triumphantly over him. Amen? And so now we can know, if you, also by the way, I know sometimes it's weird to just throw out Satan in the middle of a sermon. We need to remember who Satan, that we need to continue to have a mindset that Satan's real as Christians. Because if you don't, you will make someone else your enemy. You will make a political party your enemy. You will make some person that's other from you, different from you, your enemy. But if, if Satan is not in your framework, someone else will be your enemy. But the only true enemy that we have in this world is Satan himself. And on the cross, Jesus came and conquered Satan. Amen? You can clap. It's okay. Um, and so this is what Jesus was doing on the cross. It's this theme of Christus Victor. He is victoring over Satan and the demons. And so we see this, that the, the, the whole sky turned black. And this was also an, a, a symbol that, that darkness was reigning. But at the same time, it was a symbol that Jesus was going to be victorious over this thing. Now, the last one. Last name is the theme substitution. So you have to ask the question, was he dying on our behalf or in our place or both? Um, Many of you may not be aware of this, but the idea of substitution has been um, very much um, called a lot of bad names throughout history of Christianity. Um, And I don't, we've got to uh, see that um, for Jesus to die in our place, this is not some kind of divine um, child abuse. Some people see this as like, oh, well, the father looked upon the son and was like, I'm going to have to, you know, I'm going to have to, you know, kill you because I don't want to kill all my, uh, my people. No, this, the son and the, the, the mystery is that the father, son, and the Holy Spirit agreed to this plan. This is, no one was punishing any, this is something that the, Jesus said, I give my life up willingly. And, and, and what Jesus did on the cross is, is he said, like, he who knew no sin, is what Second Corinthians says. He who knew no sin became sin so that you and I could know the righteousness of God. That when Jesus looks at you now, he sees his son, Jesus Christ. He doesn't see any more of your guilt, no more shame. He sees Jesus perfect. And so now the same words that God pronounced from heaven to Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, that applies to every single child of God in this room. That when he looks at you, he says, you are my daughter. And I'm well pleased with you. You are my son. I'm well pleased with you. You are vindicated. You have a substitute. You have someone who died in your place. This is good news. Now, what is this? All these theories of atonement, they're all theories. They're all pictures. And really, it doesn't, what really matters is to see the personal love of God in this. Because all these theories come from just different unique individuals and unique societies looking at the cross, seeing how it worked, and looking at the scriptures. And I want to just give us, leave us three things that I want us to challenge us with out of this um, as we move forward and being in wonder of the cross. I want us to just um, think of this imagery that we see with the, the curtain being torn from top to bottom. I want you to think of the phrase, rip the veil. I don't usually do this, but say, rip the veil. All right, so I want you to rip the veil this week, all right? I want you to rip the veil. The first thing that I, I want us to see is that we, we've got to rip the veil of the empire, all right? Um, when this Roman centurion, so we, let's ask, before we do that, let's ask the question, what made this Roman centurion go from making a mockery of Jesus to making much of Jesus? When he, di- when he died, we don't get a whole lot, but when he died, he crucified so many people. Jesus cried with a loud, powerful cry, it is finished. And he said, in your hands I commit my spirit, God. And then the Roman centurion said, when he saw the way he died, he said, surely this is the Son of God. Now I want you to back up. Remember what I said about Caesar Augustus. 
What was he called? What was every coin, every inscription, everything? What was, called, what was he called? The Son of God. Do you see what is happening for this Roman centurion? For the first, he, he's, he's going, I, every ounce of militarism, every ounce of nationalism, that every, every ounce of allegiance to Caesar of Augustus, he saw the way this guy died, and he just met him, and he goes, this is the Son of God. And I think because when he cried his last, I think he saw so many crucifixions, he knew biologically and physiologically that no one on the cross could dare cry a loud cry when you were being, dying in lack of oxygen. And I think he saw the power of Jesus on display, cry out with a loud cry, it is finished. And he said, there's no way. That's never happened. It's impossible. And I think he saw that this man had something different about him. And he had the true power. That when true power is unleashed, it is used to serve and to love, to give of themselves. I love what uh, Caesar, I mean, um, uh, St. Augustine said. St. Augustine in the book called City of God, he writes, in the, he said, every other city that's ever been built has been built um, by blood, blood that was violently taken. When you think about every empire, every society, it's all been built off one power group killing off another group and then reigning and dominating. And he says, every single city is blood either is taken violently, but the city of God, it is built by blood given freely. And he goes, that is the God we worship. So first we have to rip the veil of this empire mi- mindset that where we start to blend our national, nationalistic with our Christianity and we begin to blend those, we've got to get out of the bed of the empire and see that the only allegiance that we will pledge as God's people is to a king and a kingdom. That is the only allegiance that we pledge. And it is the first and foremost thing of our hearts. And we say Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. So we rip the veil of the empire. Second, we rip the veil of empty religion. I love this picture. The Roman centurion did not see this curtain torn from top to bottom because the temple was far off. Jesus was crucified outside the city. But the the curtain in the temple was this thick curtain, 17 feet by 17 feet. It was as thick as a phone book. It was curtains, 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 just filled up as thick as a phone book, all right? I know that many of you don't have phone books anymore. I don't know if you, if you, if you don't know what a phone book is, look it up. Look up Yellow Pages. They exist. They used to come to your door, all right? This, 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 this curtain, it says, was ripped from top to bottom. This is symbolic. Now, you've got to remember, when, when Passover came, there was this, this temple, and there was courtyards. And if you were a Gentile, there was a courtyard for you and said, you can come no further. This is the place you can come towards God's temple where there's going to be a sacrifice made for your guilt. And this is the courtyard that you can come to and no, for, no more for you. If you were a woman, there was a courtyard for you. You could come to, God's, come to the temple to worship. You could come and recognize that your, your guilt was going to be taken care of and atoned for by this blood of the lamb symbolically that God would one day take care of it, but that you could come no further. This is as far as you could come. If you were a Jew who was journeying as a pilgrim, there was a courtyard for you. You can come no further. Even if you were the high priest, there was, a, there was boundaries for you. You could only come in once a year and you would have a, a rope tied around your ankle and in case you died in the presence of God, they could pull you out. But even for him, there was a, you, you, this is as far as you go. And what God, Jesus does on the cross is he rips this curtain from top to bottom and said, there's no more boundaries for any of you. You can come as close as you want to come. You can come and have access to me to get rid of this empty religion. Part of the thing that Jesus was judging was this empty religious system that it was to point to him but was never meant to be fulfilling. 
And so he, he says, for you, rip the veil of religion. If you have just grown up in a religious environment and you are he, here and you um, feel like you're just doing things to, to earn God's favor, um, the cross of Jesus, Watchman Nee says, is not spelled D-O. It's spelled D-O-N-E. It has been done. No more religious games for you. Come get access to the love of God. Come get access to the presence of God. And so we rip the veil of empty religion. And lastly, I just want to say that we, we rip the veil of our hearts. When this man came, this Roman centurion said, surely this is the Son of God. He, 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 the, heart of his, the, the veil of his heart was ripped open. The hardness, the callousness that had developed over the years, being a part of the oppressive regime, had been ripped. And I love what... Uh, I don't know if it was G.K. Chesterton, but he's known for this, that there was a, a question in an op-ed piece that said, what is wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton replied, I am. And I think we all must recognize that we play our role in this broken society, that we all have guilt that needs to be dealt with, that we have a barrier but Jesus has removed the barrier. And I think when affluent Americans think of heaven, we tend to think of celestial, natural beauty, family reunions with everybody with a T-shirt on that's got the family of God on it. We think of like this beautiful picture of heaven. But you know what? When disadvantaged groups think of God's heaven and promise, they think of ultimate justice. And ultimate justice was done on the cross so that we, who are bent in on ourselves, who have participated in the death of Jesus, we come as a community knowing we all need grace. And all, there's, it's stripped of all credentials. And so we, we are a community and we come to the cross. There's no credentials at the cross. No one where you have, no credentials are here at the cross. If you said, I'm in need of God, just like everybody else. And we rip the veil of our hearts. No blame shifting no acting as the victim, just acknowledging that we need to be made right. And the barrier of God's presence is removed for us because God judges sin and welcomes us in. And that's the good news I want to close with today, is that God has always been for you. He has always been for you. He bore your sins because He is so for you. He is so for you. In His wrath and anger towards sin, God is for you. Like, I can sin my way out of my marriage. I could sin my way, like, out of being a pastor. I can sin my way out of physical health and a lot more, but I cannot sin my way out of the love of Christ. I can never, ever sin my way out of the love of Christ, and neither can you, because the cross of Christ paid the damning penalty for our sins. So even in his anger towards sin, God is for us. Even when God is against us, he's still for us. That's the good news. That his love is burning away whatever doesn't belong. It's burning away what's keeping us from pressing more deeply into his mighty heart. His anger then is a form of his love it takes on when it runs head into sin. And God fights sin by taking the place of the very sin he judges. So he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that you can know the righteousness of God. That's the good news of the cross. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, um, I'll have the band come up. Oh, God, you are so good. We see this beautiful picture of you that 
It's not fragmented. It's not um, cliche. So often when we talk about love, it's just like it can turn into like this like picture of like a false Western romance. (laughs) It's just so far from who you are. Your love is so great that you didn't hide from us, but you came and revealed yourself on the cross. Your love isn't fragmented, it's not passive, it comes in after all of us and it deals with all of us. Some of us in this room, some of you may just feel like you're just way too much for God. That you, or you may feel like you're not enough. That you're not enough, that you'll never live up to his standards. And some of you feel like you're just way too much to handle. That God could never love you for who you are. And what Jesus does on the cross is he says, you know what? Get rid of that empty religion that tries to just get my love by my standards. I rip the veil. You come on in. You come on in and my love and acceptance and intimacy will, will just completely transform you. It'll give you new life. So if that's you and you're like, I just can never live up to this thing. That's why I gave up wrong religion a long time ago. We're not inviting you to religion. We are inviting you to know God intimately this morning and if you have never known Jesus Christ in that kind of intimate way accessible way we invite you this morning to say here I am Lord I receive your love I receive your grace I receive even I receive the fact that you took away my sin and so that's you we invite you to the access of God for others of of you in this room you feel like you're too much for God that you've, there's no way that he could smile upon you when he sees what you've done, the sin you've done to others, to yourself, to him. And he says, I, <laughs> I received a Roman centurion. And here's the good news. I've left it out in my sermon. Did you know that the first human being to call Jesus the son of God in the gospels is this Roman centurion. God says it, Jesus says it, and the demons confess it and acknowledge it. And the whole story, we're waiting. When in the world is somebody going to get it? And the first person that gets it is this Roman centurion. And God says, if he can get it, you can get it. So God's grace is for you. He's taken your place on the cross. And he says, receive. Receive this morning and respond. Whether it's for the first time or if you just need to be in awe of God's love, reckless love for you, just rip the veil. Rip the veil of the things, the barriers that are keeping you from him. So let's do ministry with Jesus. Let's worship him. If you need prayer, we want to pray over you. We want to pray God's love and acceptance over you, that he has removed your guilt as far as the east is from the west so that he could bring you into his family. God, have your way in this place. Holy Spirit, would you blow and would you rip the sea wide open so that we could experience your love? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Would you guys stay? Unrestrained, your love is wild. Your love is wild for me. It isn't shy. It's unashamed, your love is proud to 
to be seen with me. You don't give your heart in pieces. And you don't hide yourself to tease us. Uncontrolled, uncontained, your love is a fire burning bright for me. It's not just a spark not just a flame your love is a light that all the world will see all the world will see and you don't give your heart in pieces And you don't hide yourself to tease us. You don't give your heart. No, you don't give your heart in pieces. Oh, you don't hide yourself to tease us. 